Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high rise in beautiful Beverly Hills, adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the titular host of the True TV series, Adam Ruins Everything, and a stand-up comic currently in the midst of the nationwide Mind Parasites tour. Hello and welcome, Adam Conover. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. I am so pleased to have you here. One of the great pleasures of this job is that I get to talk to people whose work I'm interested in. Um, I feel the same way about my job, actually. I guess you would. Yeah. But occasionally it works out that I, usually I catch somebody and I go, oh yeah, I really like that stuff they were doing like five to 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, see, uh, I'm sort of a professional contrarian asshole. Mm-hmm. So when I saw the billboards for your show, I was like, that's a show, Adam Ruins Everything, that mm-hmm. I'm going to enjoy. And four short years later, I finally got around to actually watching it. <laughs> when we hit Netflix? Exactly there right. There we go. A yeah. lot of people, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people had that reaction. Finally, when the show hit Netflix, they were like, oh, yeah, that show that I've been meaning to check out for three or four years, I can watch the second episode of it. Um, <laughs> right. They put a weird collection of them on Netflix. You don't get to see the pilot. Right. And you don't it starts get, with two. It starts with number two. It's a little bit, the, I don't know, understand, I don't understand how the deal was made. That's what happened. Uh, but, yeah, so that's when a lot of people yeah. got around to it, and I'm very happy to have them. Come on in. Contrarian assholes are our audience. So there's a big tent for everyone contrarian in America. You're sort of our patron saint now, Adam. <laughs> Very happy to be. Um, so I want to talk about the content of the show, but briefly I just want to compliment you a little bit more on the the structure of the show. I kind of sort of knew what it was going to be. I'd caught a couple clips in a bar where you're like, Q-tips, don't do a goddamn thing. And I was like, right, that's what I expected. Yeah. I was not expecting the world that you had created in the show. I, did, I never expected that it would be running storylines and characters and that you could yeah. have a love interest or anything like that so this isn't a question just kudos I, to you I appreciate you saying that you know when we created the show I came from I was working at College Humor and you know I had done sketch comedy for many years and I always had this attitude of if you're gonna do something it should be good in every way possible like it should yep. you should make it you know not not just be an informational show we're doing sketch comedy and let's also have a storyline let's also you know have a, con- a coherent world let's do running gags stuff like that um, and uh, yeah so I, I literally I was like this is my one shot to make a television show yeah. I'm throwing the fucking kitchen sink in it and little did I know I made I created one of the most complicated shows to write on television uh, we <laughs> our show is like incredibly intricate uh, but I'm really really happy with how it came out Thank you so much for that. Uh, so few people comment on that aspect of the show. Oh, really? And so, yeah, well, I mean, most people's favorite part is the facts, right? Is the information and the comedy, yeah. and that's what they're there for. I just kind of dug that. I thought you were going to get laid for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my character, I believe canonically on the show, you know, I play a slightly heightened version of myself. There's a character version of Adam I play on the show, and canonically he is a virgin. We have said that. <laughs> I could. I don't think I saw that episode on the Netflix collection, but I could see that. <laughs> it's just we, we've never said so explicitly on the show, but in our writer's room, we're like, yeah, he's never had sex. Yeah, that sounds about right. You committed hard to uh, to a look. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm an old school glam metal guy, 
So <laughs> I, this is also something that I'm, I'm very uh, more conscious of than the average viewer, maybe. Uh, that can be a, 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 a tough thing. Ask Robert Smith of The Cure. Yeah. What, do you... Do you intend to ride the big tall hair into the sunset, or do you have an exit strategy? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I do have a little bit of an exit strategy. I mean, again, Adam Conover on the show is a little different from me in real life. So, um, you know, the way that I dress on the show was a way that I like to dress, and I'm interested in dressing. And I do have, you know, I am blessed with a with a poofy quaff, and uh, <laughs> so you know, of course, we're going to use those things, but we sort of stylized them into a more you know specific silhouette. So the the clothes I wear on the show are both extremely colorful and also a little bit nerdy. And you know, uh, like I I always wear a tie, I always have a pocket square and a tie clip and patterned pants and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then my hair is done to be very tall. In real life, if people come see me on the road, or if they come see the Mind Parasite show, they'll see. Oh, I still dress. I still dress nice. I still have a way I like to dress. You can still tell it's me but it's just a little bit more it's a little bit more relaxed it's a little bit more you know you're letting a little bit of the air out of it yeah are, are, totally. are, are you in a relationship does your partner am. does your does your wife or girlfriend ever request uh, tv adam uh <laughs> no she does no she does not uh uh it's funny because people say it, when she, we watch the show she's like oh your voice is different like mm-hmm. it's really evolved in a way it's sort of that if you i mean the ones you've been watching on netflix uh, the character it's a lot like homer simpson on the tracy ullman show versus homer simpson now where where it's like a lot of the elements are still there, but you hear how it's sort of solidified. You yeah, know? you sound like a drifter early on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so Adam Conover now on the show is like always up here. Hello, I'm always up. I'm always doing this. You know, and I was like <laughs> this week. It's it's almost like a Pee Wee Herman level of of stylized. Um, whereas you know, in real life, I paint with all the colors of my voice. And you use the full register as you're. I mean, you're yeah. showing it off right now. You have no trouble talking <laughs> down there. It seems very natural to yes. you. Yes. So, um, so you have the the tour the mind parasites mm-hmm. what are we talking about here well so that was look my first love in comedy is stand-up um and uh i i have been looking for a while for a way to synthesize what i do on adam ruins everything that sort of mind-blowing informational comedy with stand-up comedy uh, in a brand new way, and that's this show. So uh, you, it is a show that is structured around some mind blowing information and you know sort of cultural commentary that I wanted to impart and spread. But also, I just wanted to write some fucking funny jokes and tell them in front of people. Um, and so it's a combination of those two things. The structure of the show, the the overall theme is. Uh, I found out about these biological parasites that exist in nature that when they, you know, a parasite is a creature that lives and feeds on another creature, very evil, creepy things. There are these special kinds of parasites that take over the minds of their hosts, that literally control their behavior once they're infected. So, for instance, there's this fungus that infects ants. It only grows on ants, and when it con- when it uh, infects the ant, it forces the ant to climb a tree and bite onto a leaf at exactly this particular height that the fungus... The- ant would not even go up there otherwise it's literally being mind controlled by the fungus uh, and it clamps down onto the leaf um, and freezes there and then the fungus erupts from its body like poof, and sprinkles spores down below to infect the other ants below right um, now that's 
incredibly fucked up. Um, and uh, that's really, yet another thing that makes me question evolution. But that's I, a whole. You should exactly feel free to take that on on your show. I mean, evolution. What, come on, really? That's really what I, that's what I'm talking about in this yeah. live show. Is like this is well, I didn't know evolution uh, was a horror movie director. You right. know, uh, mm-hmm. but apparently it is. And that's not the only example. There are thousands and thousands of parasites that do this. And I use that as a way to talk about the cultural parasites that are seeking to control our minds. Um, things like advertising, things like the algorithm. Uh, in my case, alcohol. I talk about my own experiences there. Um, and how similar those are when you look at it with a real clear eye to uh, you know to these biological parasites in that they are outside forces that are seeking to hack our minds for their benefit. Do you feel like I find and it, it's funny? Of course it is. Of course it is. I, I find it really. Uh, I think we can talk about it though uh, in a sort of in-depth way and sure. still probably get in a couple of one-liners here and there. Absolutely. Do you feel like this is something new? Do you feel like uh, we've entered a, a new era of you know? dystopian mind controllers this just something that's been happening in society be it religion or whatever for a long time and this is the new face of it oh I, th- I think it's the second one um, I mean uh, you know the algorithm uh, the social media algorithm as a vector of control right and I'm talking about how you know every time you go on a website every time you go on an app the uh, that app or website has algorithms that are watching your behavior um, noting what you do and then trying to uh, change your behavior to get you to click um, as much as possible right um, and by doing so, by running tests on you over and over again and making little adjustments, they are able to exploit features of your psychology you didn't even know were there, right? Um, that is obviously new, right? Uh, but uh, I, the idea of an outside force seeking to control human behavior for its benefit is obviously not new. And I, ta- I thought about uh, religion, uh, organized religion specifically, as, a, uh, as an example in the show. I ended up you know, uh, leaving that one on the cutting room floor. But uh, it's a fair example that, uh, especially if you look at the medieval Catholic Church, for instance. Um, and that back, back then it was the only church, right? The church. Yeah. Um, the way Everybody that— else is infidels. Yeah, exactly. So much has changed nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the way that the structure of that was, uh, you know, layered over society in a way that got people to behave in a certain way, right? Um, back when people literally believed, you know, that if the church excommunicated you, you would go to hell, not heaven, right? And um, uh, that was a there was an actual part of the fabric of everyday life. Um, I certainly think that that resembles in the same way that this is a this is a force. This is a uh, you know sort of weird abstract creature that's living on top of humanity. This this structure of the church itself, right? Um, and it is trying to control its behavior in order to increase its reach and increase its. Uh, uh, you know, viability. Now, that's not to say that, uh, you know, I don't even mean that necessarily as a criticism. I, you know, I, I don't say, hey, that's that's a uh, terrible thing that we should eradicate. I'm not like one of those folks who's out there saying we should do away with organized religion, right? Um, but especially in those years, I think you can look at it and say, yes, that is what it was doing. So I would like to think that... Um, okay, take alcohol as an example. It almost yeah. works for any one of these things. I would like to think that fundamentally I know what 
the powers that be are trying to do to me. And occasionally they win a battle here or there, mm-hmm. but I am aware of what's going on and, and I'm the master of my devices and I and yeah. I control them, they don't control me. Yes, occasionally from time to time I might have a, two or three extra drinks I shouldn't have had and regret them the next morning, but in general alcohol doesn't, doesn't rule my life. Occasionally I do go, fuck, I've been staring at Twitter a lot today, but for the most part I think I can keep it at arm's length and, and not let it run my life. Am I kidding myself? Yeah, I mean, you would like to think that, right? Uh, I can't tell you for you, right, how much it controls you or it didn't. Um, what I talk about in the show is you know, I get very personal in a way that I that I haven't earlier in my work, and I talk about my own relationship with drinking, and I quit drinking in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you sort of felt you had to do that? I thought that was more of a lifestyle choice. It was, it was a choice. Um, I, I didn't... Uh, The thing about me was I was not what anybody would call a problem drinker or an alcoholic. Um, I was a nightcap drinker. I had two two drinks a night, a drink or two a night, you know, four on the weekends, you know, if I'm at a party, drinks a night. But I wasn't, you know, a blackout drinker. I wasn't a, you know, uh, an uncontrollable drinker. I wasn't one of those people who, you know, I talked to some friends who are in recovery and they say, oh, my problem is if I had one, I was going to have 20. And I was never like that, right? Um, I was like, hey, I like drinking. It relaxes me. That's it. What? What's the big deal? I'm just trying to get relaxed. I've had a long day. Like, I can't unwind with a with a glass of whiskey. I could not have it, sure, but you know, I'd prefer to have it, right? Um, and uh, but the reality was, I I was having drinking that much every single night every night for 15 years, right? Um, and if I didn't have a drink, I would start to feel uncomfortable and antsy. I would start to feel like itchy, you know? I would be like, I need to, you know, when I was on the road, you know, I need to I needed to make a point. Well, I, uh, either I got to bring little bottles on the plane or I got to go pick something up on the way. I got to ask the college kids who are driving me to campus to do the college show, hey, can we stop at the liquor store so I can buy, you know, <laughs> the whiskey I'm going to need later in the evening, right? You know? Right. And, I, and, I guess when the guy who's taking me to the liquor store is like 15 years younger, than you it does put a different yeah a little bit a little bit and like yeah it's very funny of a flip like like hello hello youngster can you buy me some alcohol <laughs> i need That's i need really help funny, it's, the, yeah. it's the opposite of what you normally expect uh uh but you know and and so the thing about it for me is i, I talk about this in the show is that i realized once i quit oh it was just like smoking it was just like smoking for me i'm not gonna say that's what it's like for everybody but for me that's what it was like yeah where it was addictive. I, uh, uh, I I had done it long enough that I had become dependent on it, and it was hard to quit. I had a little bit of withdrawal, and then I had social. Uh, I had this sort of psychological attachment to it when I was in the situations where I was used to drinking, where it was like hard. I was like, oh, I could really go for a drink right now at this party on this flight, um, you know, on my couch watching something at eleven p.m. while right before doing the stand-up show, etc. Like it was really part of my psyche, which is exactly the same way I, you know, you'd feel about smoking after a meal with. A a cup of coffee while you're in your car, etc. Right, um, but the difference is with smoking. I knew that it was addictive. Right? Had you been a smoker? I had been a smoker. Okay, yes, yeah. I had been. A, but I, I quit ten years before I quit drinking. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the first time I, I lit up, I knew it was addictive. Right? Like like I I knew at the age of seventeen, smoking's addictive. We knew that about it. I didn't know that about drinking. Um, I thought the whole time, and I drank for ten years longer than I ever smoked. Um, I thought the whole time that I, I just like it. I just like it. That's why I'm doing it. It wasn't until I quit that I realized, no, no, no. I was under the control of the parasite, right? I was under, under I was being mind controlled by yeah. the, by the substance. That's what 
addiction is, right? And uh, the pernicious thing about it was that it tricked me into thinking it was it was my idea. And that is the way that these things exert control over you. They don't, you know, uh, like a, a lot of people, you know, you'll you'll have. Some people have that thing where there where there's a disconnect between you know their mind and their body or, or oh I I want to quit drinking but oh I can't etc you know but for a lot of people the way the the parasite exerts control over you is by changing your thoughts and feelings and emotions so that you think it's your idea when really you're you're under the control now is this your Theory is this the model that you use to look at it and get yourself off of it, or is there some scientific basis for what you're saying? You know, uh, addiction science is so complex yeah. uh, and poorly understood that I didn't feel comfortable. There's a lot of science in the show. I didn't feel comfortable making a statement about this is how addiction works. So that segment for me is about this is my relationship with it. This yeah. is the model that works for me. Um uh, you know, I am not, for instance, a person who uh, went to AA or, or you know, uses that model in, in connection with myself. Um, uh, and But I don't want to judge that model or tell anybody that that model is, is incorrect, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think when it comes to addiction generally, I think it is such a multifaceted beast that we don't understand. There, there is not a single explanation for what addiction is, right? It's a it's a combination of different things yeah, yeah, yeah. that we're still working out. So well, it's like a branch of mental health, which in and of itself is really, really hard to pin down. Oh yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely. You know, so the difference between for so one of the things I talk about on the show is that we have this uh, uh idea that alcoholics are a special type of people, right? That's that is the reason we don't label alcohol as an addictive drug, right? There's two types of people. There's alcoholics and there's moderate drinkers, right? Mm. Um and alcoholics, oh, they have a disease, those poor those poor souls, you know, and so they have to go to meetings and they can't ever drink because they'll go crazy. But yes. the rest of us moderate drinkers, <laughs> oh, we can drink as much as we want. Yeah. Right? We don't have any problem because we're all moderate drinkers. That's, right? I never thought about it in these terms. I had like a couple of uncles when I was growing up and it was just sort of understood that's why so-and-so has a ginger ale. And I guess yeah. somewhere it was, but, I did get the impression that, yeah, if so-and-so had ever gotten into the whatever, that, yeah, like King Kong would be unleashed exactly, in the living room. Exactly. But the rest of you get to have wine, yeah. right? And you don't even have to ever have to think about your drink. Right Mm -hmm. now, we don't think about cigarettes in that way. You're not like, oh, that person's an addict. That person's a you know a cigaretteaholic, and they can never have them. But I get to right. Um, But the truth is, they're both addictive drugs. Right. Right. Um, Now, I think that that you know that to me is a is a that is an example where our cultural model of what addiction is doesn't match up to the reality. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I don't want to say that. The, you know, it, it, there are folks who folks who label themselves as alcoholics in that mode. I'm not going to argue with them about that. There are certainly people who drink alcohol very occasionally and never have an addictive relationship with it, right? Yeah, yeah. But well, it doesn't seem that you're arguing that people who think they're alcoholics aren't alcoholics. It seems that you're arguing that some people who don't think they're alcoholics are also alcoholics. I would call them addicts rather than alcoholics. Right. But yes, I, I, I sure. think because well, uh, I, I don't label myself as having been an alcoholic or mm-hmm. being an alcoholic, but I do say I was addicted to alcohol. Yeah, right? I, I think I my my habit is very similar to the one that you describe, I'm sure yeah. many, many people who are listening to this who have not stopped entirely are kind of arriving at the same place that you are. You f- yeah. you feel really, really good about being off of it? Because my experience, honestly, is I'll give myself huge months-long breaks, mm-hmm. and I think I'm going to experience this like wonderful 
uh, mental clarity. And then when I don't get it for like two or three weeks to stretch, I'm like, well, fuck, I may as well be drinking. <laughs> I mean, I feel I feel better, right? Yeah. Um, I I sleep much better. Sure. Uh, oh my god, yeah. Uh, I sleep much better. And the thing, the key for me is that all the situations in which I was drinking, um, in which I thought drinking enhanced the activity. I have realized it did not. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't make me looser and funnier on stage. It didn't make me have more fun at parties, right? It didn't make me, uh, you know, uh, more relaxed at the end of a long day. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm relaxed. Like, honestly, it was making me less relaxed because if I didn't have a drink, I would be unrelaxed, right? Yeah. But, you know, watching, you know, yesterday I, you know, spent the at, at the end of the night with my girlfriend on the couch watching an episode of the new Star Trek, which I love, right? That the was Vulcan's very... got a beard now, right? What did you say? The Vulcan's got a beard now, right? I think they, uh, yeah, I What's believe they do. What's up with that? I, I assume they were kind of hairless. No, they've got hair. Okay. They've got hair. They, they, I, I mean, didn't, they've had didn't hair. Tu- I just... Didn't Tuvok from Voyager have, have uh, I'm already out of my a depth. beard? Okay. Uh, well, that was relaxing, yeah. right? And I know now if I, having a glass of whiskey in my hand would not have made it more relaxing. Yes. Um, uh, it would have honestly interfered with my sleep because it was right before bed, et cetera. Um, and uh, uh, so that, that to me, that was my own personal voyage with it um, is uh, there's this guy – this guy, Alan Carr, wrote these books, uh, The Easy Way to Quit Smoking, The Easy Way to Quit Drinking. Uh, the the book, The Easy Way to Quit Smoking, is very justifiably famous for helping many, many people quit smoking. It was how I quit. It it sounds very facile to say, read this book and you will quit, but like his method works incredibly well, and it is just... Getting you around what here's what he says. He says the physical addiction, that's real, but it doesn't last that long, you know, with smoking and with drinking. The real issue is it embeds in you the psychological belief that you need the drug in order to have fun in life, right? In order to enjoy life. So you think the reason it's hard to quit smoking is because you are used to having a cigarette with a cup of coffee every day and every time you drive, right? Um, And if you don't have that, you're unhappy. Right. Uh, You believe psychologically that the cigarette is what makes that thing enjoyable. And if you don't have the cigarette, you will never enjoy it again. And the rest of your life will be misery. And you cherry on top of all these little social situations. Yeah, exactly. And you feel most specifically. And this is like, oh, my God, this is exactly me. If I quit smoking, I will feel like I want a cigarette every moment for the rest of my life. That's the fear. And that's what makes it hard to quit. Right. What he says is it's a trick. Right. That it smoking does not make it more fun to drive your car. Smoking does not make the coffee taste better. It makes it taste worse. Right. Um, and the truth is everyone who doesn't smoke, they feel exactly the way that you feel after you've had a cigarette. They feel that way every moment of their lives. Right. So all you have to do to quit is throw away the pack of cigarettes and realize that once you have quit, you're going to feel as good as you do right after you take that drag every moment of your life, right? Um, It's about getting yourself off the the delay the gratification, get the gratification, and then wait for the next little high five to yourself moment. Absolutely. That that gratification, hey, um, I I feel a lack. Ooh, now I feel satisfied, Mm -hmm. right? That is an addictive pattern in itself, right? It's up and down and up and down. When am I going to get that next hit, right? Um, but again, it's a trick, right? And alcohol for me worked exactly the same way. I, I honestly believed that I needed it to do stand up, that I needed to have one whiskey before I went up. Now that's not, uh, that's not an alcoholic behavior to have one whiskey before, uh, by our culture's normal, normal, the way we talk about it. But, um, uh, it was still a trick. I didn't need one whiskey to be funny on stage, but I believe that I did. And now that I've 
Uh, so basically what quitting has been like for me is all those situations in which I thought it enhanced the activity, right? I'm on a plane. On a plane, I get to have whiskey, and that's what makes flying fun. You know, even, flying sucks, so that makes it better, right? Um, every time I've gone into one of those situations after quitting, I ask myself, is it really better? What was it really? Would it really have been better if I had been drinking? And the answer is always no. You know, yeah. like I've realized, uh, I can go to a party and drink a shitload of seltzers. You know, I it's still loud. I still yell with my friends. I'm still loose and kind of crazy. You know, I'm just not going to be hungover. I'm not going to be sloppy. I'm not going to spend fifty dollars. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time waiting in line at the bar. You know, um, I'm I'm not going to. By the way, I've lost twenty pounds since I quit drinking, so I'm not going to be twenty pounds heavier, right? Um, but the party is just as much fun, right? Yeah. Um, so the that belief that it enhanced the things um, uh, for me was fictional, and that has what. That is what has made me stop drinking. I'm not like, hey, my, uh, I've leveled up to a new stage of enlightenment or anything like that. But my my life, I believe, is is measurably better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody would debate that we'd all be better off off the sauce. Uh, you ever wonder about the comedy thing specifically? Like, I think about <laughs> at the at the at the comedy store. I do a little stand up and. This legend that we have in our mind that if you'd seen, you know, Richard Pryor or Robin Williams or Sam Kinison at one o'clock in the morning. Mm. Are we sure that they were actually funny at that point? Because, oh, yeah. I mean, they were yeah. hammered. I mean, I'm not talking about the HBO special. Yeah. I mean, just like one o'clock on a Friday night. They're hammered, and so is everybody yeah. in the audience. Yeah. And I think if you were the sober person walking mm-hmm. in, you m- might not be entertained. by. As a matter of fact, you might want to leave. Totally. I, I Absolutely. You know, and that can be a... Fun environment if you're on that same headspace, if you're yeah. in that rarefied air of everybody's everybody's totally fucked up and, and we're all okay <laughs> and with Richard that. Richard Pryor's here, which helps. Y- yeah. I mean, look, I'm sure Richard Pryor was, would have been funny even when he was hammered, you know, obviously. Um, but I don't think that being hammered makes you funnier. No. Right? Pe- yeah. Period. I think we um, all sort of reach a point in our lives where we figure that out. Yeah. And I know a lot of comics, uh, you know... Um, uh, you know Matt McCarthy. Um, he's a very funny comic, and and he he's like, you know, his first album is, uh, you know, he's holding his his album cover is like him holding three whiskeys, and like you can kind of hear he was very much a drunk comic. Um, I I hope he wouldn't be offended if he heard me say that, but um, I, I I think he might agree that you know even on his album you can sort of tell oh yeah he's he's drinking on the album and stuff like that, and he he's now sober, and the dude is still one of the funniest people alive. Like it's mm-hmm. it's it is not. Part of what makes you no. what makes you funny. No, I can point to one or two uh, people. I, I don't necessarily want to say names who are were the guy holding the whiskey on the cover of their album who yeah. are way fucking funnier now. Every, yeah. everybody agrees way fucking funnier now. So it's not just about like uh, like Motley Crue. Probably not as good without alcohol. It probably <laughs> was a critical ingredient for those three or four years where they were popping off. But uh, stand up comedy is not is not glam metal. Yeah, I mean. If if what you need is some amount of sloppiness, yeah. if you're like what I what I really like about these people is that they're drunk. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's that's a thing that you could enjoy and like I like the bands and comics that are the drunkest and and you know because I like seeing people slur and fall down and and be sort of sloppy but yeah. like and be be minorly debilitated. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think it I don't think it actually uh, it actually improves things. You I know? get you. I get you. And and I think that there is this overarching thing where nobody wants to be an addict and everybody wants to live their best life to some extent or another. But I gather, I think I know enough about you to know that you don't want to 
uh, feel like you're handing control over. You don't want to be tricked. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the alcohol thing, and that's the rest of of the show, Mind Parasites. And I, I'd like yep. to talk about, tell me more about how my phone, because that's really kind mm-hmm. of what we're talking about. Yeah. Again, what what are the things that it's doing to me that I'm maybe not fully aware of, in your opinion? Well, um, for instance, one of the things I talk about, sort of one of the simple examples on the show, is uh, there are those little um, ad blocks uh, that you'll see on a lot of websites. They'll say, from the web, and then there'll be these weird combinations of images um, and text, you know, that are designed to get people to click. There are like these weird, you know, an old person's face or like, you know, uh, a weird unsettling image like that. And those, for example, this is the simplest example, right? Those those are just they're testing random images um, and uh, they're throwing up images based on which ones get the most clicks. And by doing that, they're able to like exploit little uh, idiosyncrasies in our psychology, right? So, for instance, there's one example I show where there, there's an image of someone's like knees that have like little holes in them, right? And it's like, why would that be an image that would cause people to click? Well, that exploits a common phobia called trypophobia, which is a phobia of flesh with holes in it, of seeing an image of flesh with holes in it. Um, no way. Yeah, it's it's if I could, you know, we're on the radio here, so um, if I could throw up an image, you know, it would cause your listeners to be ah. You know, of you can look at everybody can, can do it while they're listening. You can right look now. it up Trypophobia if you want. Trypophobia, Trypophobia T R Y P O uh, phobia. Okay, uh, and uh, so that that's an image that causes a gut reaction in people when they see it, right, and makes them very likely to click on it. Now, nobody who who at that ad company knows what trypophobia is. They just stumbled across it by algorithmically testing image after image after image, right? Um, uh, And uh, the algorithm stumbled in a way to create an emotional reaction in the viewer, uh, in the the browser, that causes the clicks to happen. So that's that's a very simple example. Um, The more pernicious ones are things like, for instance, um, uh, Twitter, right? Uh, Twitter now sorts, uh, when you go there, you know, it's just show you all the tweets. It used to just show you the tweets in reverse chronological order. Now it sorts them based on which kinds of tweets you engage with the most, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is... Yeah, your, your Neil Tyson, DeGrasse Tyson stuff is the top of my feed for the last three days. Oh, is it really? Yes. Well, that, that I tweeted about Neil DeGrasse Tyson? Yes. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh-huh. Why, why is that? Because you clicked on it or because... I don't think I did click on it yeah. because I got your point and I, I did read in, read up on it at the time. I actually read his full statement about, look, I can yeah. see how things were misconstrued. There were women who were professional. I had professional relationships with and we did have crackers and wine, but I thought it was okay and blah, blah, blah. And now... Now you're saying he's been, uh, we don't need to get all that, but he's been cleared, but well, the people who investigated him essentially were hired by his network, so that can't be an unbiased yeah, investigation. That, 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 Twitter really thinks I need to know about that. <laughs> yeah, I put that up top. Yeah, that was my point, that yeah. he that you know he, he said it should be an impartial investigation. If you're being investigated by your own TV network that stands to lose as, ad revenue if they take you off the air and therefore has an incentive to exonerate you, yeah. that's not an impartial investigation. And from a man of science. Yeah, from a man of science, and and I care, you know, that, that's that's an important issue to me, so that's why I felt like I needed to to, to say something judicious about it. Um, but yeah, so uh, that is so so Twitter algorithmically put that at the top of your feed uh, every uh, you know uh, over and over again. Um, so they did that because they saw you engage with other tweets, uh, and uh, it said it noticed a commonality. Its algorithm said, "Okay, well, this tweet is like those tweets. Let me put it at the top of his feed." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that the tweets that we engage with tend to be the ones that make us angry and upset. Right. Right. Um, so you don't, 
you know, you don't uh, reply to a, you know, sort of even-handed tweet. You you reply to something that has a lot of emotional words in it or that is, like, really wrong in a way that makes you angry, that makes you reply and say, you're so full of shit, Karen, or whatever it is, right? And so Twitter notices that you do that and says, I'm going to give him more just like that, right? Mm. And that is why Twitter is such an anger sphere now, that every time you go on, you get so fucking enraged, uh, is because it is specifically tuned to create those emotional reactions in you. Um, and it's for that reason that, you know, a study found that, like, you know, every emotional or moral word in a tweet increased the chances of it being retweeted by 20%. False news spreads much more quickly on Twitter than than true news does uh, because of this, you know, uh, emotional algorithmic prioritization. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, a, a much simpler example is, for instance, Netflix... Um, chooses what image to show you for the show. You obviously you know that it, it's suggesting shows based on what you've watched. Oh, I like documentaries. Here's some more documentaries, right? What you might not realize is it chooses which image to show you to represent the show based on uh, its algorithmic testing of you. And oh, I always wondered about that because yeah. sometimes it'll be like the fifth character down in the pecking order, and you're yep. like, why is that the face of this show? Yep, yep. And, uh, and I mean, especially if so you Buster's the reason I watch Arrested Development. Yeah, exactly. I exactly. didn't even realize that. My joke is that you know it's. Showing is showing us both friends, but showing me a picture of Phoebe and you a picture of Ross because I'm kind of quirky and you kind of suck, right? <laughs> uh, that's straight out of the show. I'm sorry if you come see it now, you'll hear that one twice. But um, uh, by doing that, by picking those images specifically, they're able to increase viewership for those shows by 30%. Um, just by showing us images that match the psychological profile of us that the algorithm has determined, right? So that's an example that's not particularly pernicious, right? There's nothing that bad about making you click on friends. I'm not going to be out there and tell you that, right? Yeah. But that's an example of our minds being controlled by the algorithm. The algorithm is influencing our behavior by watching us and giving us uh, uh, feedback. And the science behind all this and the techniques behind this, the reason why it it is devilish is is because if it works for making you watch Friends for the 15th time, it can also lead you to believe or do things that are far more consequential. Absolutely. And the real bad example there is YouTube because YouTube shows you know it, it's not showing us episodes of friends it's showing us random content made by people on YouTube via the algorithm and the uh, information it shows us is uh, the, the videos it chooses to show us are almost universally um, uh, hateful mm-hmm. uh, incorrect dangerous videos and so I talk about the example for instance of I just did a search for flu vaccine and the number one search the number one video that came up is a UCLA five minute long video about about the flu vaccine myths versus facts here's why you should get your flu shot and then every single recommended video after that was a conspiracy theory about how the flu shot is going to kill you um, and those videos were hours long right so five minutes leads you to hours and hours of false content by conspiracy theorists who are making these videos to make a buck because that's their grift, right? Um, but they're telling you that the flu shot's going to kill you, that vaccines cause autism, that they're killing the elderly, things like that. And once you've watched one or two of those videos, those videos are in your right sidebar every single time you go on YouTube for the rest of your life, right? Oh, yeah. YouTube uh, wants me to watch Ben Shapiro handing some liberal cocksucker his ass. Yeah, absolutely. That's what YouTube has wanted. And yeah. I think I've watched your videos recently. I do. I do yeah. radio, so my it, it's it's very obvious to me what is at 
play here because yeah. I search for lots of things I'm not actually interested in yeah. because I have to do it for my work. I, I have the same issue when I watch, you know, you watch one Jordan Peterson video uh-huh. and suddenly your right sidebar is full of, you know, neo-Nazis, right? <laughs> or whatever. I like, met Jordan Peterson recently and all of a sudden, yeah, Ben yeah. Shapiro is apparently a guy I need to know more about. Exa- exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, going from Jordan Peterson to neo-Nazis is a, is a couple of steps down, but there is a well-known effect that, that people are finding that, you know, the radicalization hole gets deeper and deeper, right? You know, Jordan Peterson, I, I, I got my disagreements with him, but, uh, you know, he's not, you know, he's not uh, radicalizing people directly. Um, but, you know, you go from Jordan Peterson to Ben Shapiro to Lauren Southern to now you're starting to get into people who are advocating violence, people who are, you know, like once you get one one hole deep, deeper past that. So uh, uh, that's what YouTube is specifically doing to us. Um, and, uh, you know, I literally have in order to stop it happening to myself because I was getting those videos all the time and it was making YouTube upsetting and unpleasant to browse, I figured out how to block cookies and uh, tracking specifically on YouTube. So now at the very least, it only shows me related videos based on keywords. And even that is bad enough. It you know it no longer shows me, hey, you watched a Ben Shapiro video two months ago and here's here's a bunch more in your sidebar, even though all you're watching is, you know, a video about how to install shelves or whatever, you know. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, in the show, I specifically talk about vaccinations because that's like a very clear cut example. Uh, and again, no one at YouTube wants you to watch anti-vaccination videos. No one at YouTube is saying, hey, Ben Shapiro is a great a great person to show you. Right. Um, it's just the algorithm. It is the un uh, the unforeseen side effects of the algorithm uh, saying, OK, someone clicked on this. So mm-hmm. in that case, let's show them this video next. Right. Uh, and that's what and and that is. Look, I don't think it's a coincidence that right now vaccine rates are falling, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, people more and more people are becoming radicalized, uh, that, you know, this is this is what the algorithm has wrought (laughs) for us. Is anybody going to make a a website or an app or something that just figures out what the algorithm knows about you and tells you rather than exploiting it? Wouldn't you be interested in knowing what Twitter thinks you are? Facebook has a little mode like that, actually. Oh, for real? Yeah, I I have not used it myself. I've seen other people posting it, but it has you can look at your data for you. Uh And and people find it really upsetting um, because it'll say like, okay, we figured out that, you you know, that, that thing of when people say, uh, you know, man, I just had a baby, and then suddenly Facebook is advertising baby stuff, you know, or or that kind of thing. Um, it's able to figure that out just through your uh, usage patterns, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and uh, you can look at that list of how Facebook has categorized you. Um, I believe it's somewhere deep in their interface. Um, people can see that, you know. But the fact is, you know, there's no way to do it as a third party because the algorithms are proprietary. You don't right. know what code is running on their computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right. Good point. Good point. It's got to be uh, challenging doing what you do. You are fundamentally an entertain an entertainer. You're an mm-hmm. infotainer. Uh, how do you know when you're not crossing the line in TV, stand-up, what have you, into being sort of too priggish or a scold or, you know, keeping it fun when you're kind of delivering some unpleasant information sometimes? Sure. Well, you know, on Adam Ruins Everything, one of the ways we do it is is I specifically go a little too far on that show and then the other characters go, whoa, you're kind of being an asshole. I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a fair point, you know. Uh, so we, we play that for comedy, right? Um, that's the way that we that we diffuse it. Um. Live, it's just, you know, I try to 
treat people with respect and I try to, you know, make it funny and, uh, you know, I, I people still generally want to know these things. Yeah, right. uh, that's that's why people are coming to me. That's why our show is successful is because people want to learn and they like to know hard truths um, and comedy helps helps it go down easier, you know? Uh, yeah. So there's new episodes of Adam Ruins Everything coming this Coming out later summer? this year. Coming, yeah, around this summer. We don't have an exact date yet, but we, we, re, we shot... We just got done shooting 16 episodes. Mm-hmm. Eight of those have aired on True TV, um, and uh, eight more are coming later this year. The topics of them are on Wikipedia. Is that is that something you want out there? The topics of the upcoming of the, episodes? Of, I believe so, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know how they got there, but that's fine by <laughs> me if they are. You can ask me about them if you have any of them there. Yeah, what's your beef with uh, Little Bugs? <laughs> well, that's based on a uh, – that was that's a running gag on the first couple seasons of the show um, is just literally the phrase Little Bugs being repeated. It's just like a very stupid writer's room joke, mm-hmm. and uh, we realized that uh, – uh, we had a bunch of topics on the board. We'll have our cork board up there. Here's all the topics we want to do, and and you know sometimes we we know what the title of an episode is going to be, and sometimes we're like, well, let's just see if we can combine three topics in interesting ways, right? Um, and we realize that oh, we have three that we could combine into an episode about bugs, and so we talk about how. Um, this is a very light episode compared to the, what we were just talking about with alcohol and the algorithm and stuff like that. But we talk about how um, spiders are good. <laughs> like you shouldn't kill spiders. I know. Because they're generally good. And in, in surprising ways. Literally, I, I know you're okay, okay, they eat, you know, they eat pests or whatever, fine. But no, literally, we couldn't survive on the planet without spiders because spiders uh, uh, kill and eat uh, pests that would literally destroy our food supply. Uh, if not for spiders. Um, so uh, we talk about that. We talk about how um, uh, we should all be eating bugs, that bugs are like a wonderful food source. That it's every- coming. It, yeah, and, uh, yeah. And by the way, you already do eat bugs, like a lot, all the time, intentionally and unintentionally. I know there's the red food coloring. If you've yep. ever had ruby red grapefruit juice, you've had a secretion from- Correct, yeah, from the lac bug. Yeah. Um, but also there is an allowable amount of bug parts that are in- all foods. Uh, well, and- yeah, but I mean, there kind of has to be. We couldn't even have food. I mean, exactly. If, look at all the like, gigantic pile of chickens. You think there's not one fly in there somewhere? Yeah, well, it's more more, more vegetables, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, look at the horrible inhumane ways we're killing them. You think there's not a couple bugs in there? Yeah, and, and also the FDA allows it because it's safe and healthy to eat bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no reason not to. Yeah. Um, but then- They have them at Newark Airport now. He, oh. That's not the New Jersey I grew up in. They've got them at the Newark Airport. Yeah, they have uh, at the. I was just trying to get a snack for my kid. He's seven. He's hungry, and I'm like, okay, let's look at the little, you know, right by the cash register. And they fully had like uh, a, like a, a cricket bar. Oh, that's awesome! Kind of I'm like, wow, this is that's great. Yeah, I didn't live uh, here that long ago. <laughs> did you Did you get it? Did you eat it? I tried to talk him into it. He wouldn't go for it. Okay, well, you could have tried. I, I've I've eaten. I, there's a restaurant uh, down on La Cienega where you can get some. Uh, some spicy lime right, and, and we have a she- we have a chef come on the show, a a, a fine French chef um, who come came on and tell told us you know about uh, uh, all the wonderful dishes they make with bugs and how it's a wonderful protein source. Um, and we we also talk about how yeah, I, I mean, if we want to feed our growing population, we should start eating bugs for sure. Um, and uh, oh, and by the way. Lobsters are bugs, <laughs> you know. Like they're, they're crustaceans are straight up bugs. Like they don't have skeletons. They these are these are the insects of the sea. You know, uh, they're related. Uh, they're are they? Ar- they're arthropods. Uh huh. 
Makes uh, sense. You know, and if you're talking about what's a bug, right? What includes spiders and insects? Arthropods. Well, you know, crustaceans are arthropods. Shrimp, right? Um, in what world aren't these bugs? And mm-hmm. with lobsters, people once considered them gross to eat, right? Yes. They were they were they were a low class, a low a food for the lower classes because they were literally considered like sea bugs. What you're going to eat this like giant, right. like gross thing, right? Um, it wasn't until uh, food rationing around World War II, I believe. Um, that uh, they became re- restaurants started rebranding them because they were they were easily available as being an upscale food, um, and we all agreed. Okay, now these are an upscale, classy food now. Um, but before that, they were like, "You're not going to eat a lobster? Oh my god, that's for that's for poor folks." Yeah, I because read bugs. a thing. I wouldn't be surprised if this is in the episode. They found some like uh, workers' bill of rights from Manhattan from mm-hmm. the 1700s, I think, mm-hmm. where basically everybody was like a proto union. They're like, "Look, here's the shit. Yeah. You guys shit." all over us and that's fine that's not going to change but we are going to put our foot down on a couple things and if i remember correctly one of the things was you cannot serve us lobster more than three times per week (laughs) yeah yeah exactly because they were really like it was it was the it was a food for lower for the lower classes right it was a it was a way to uh Feed people very cheaply because we're just, hey, let's just haul these bugs out of the ocean and, and boil them, you know? <laughs> um, so, and we also talk about how there's bugs inside of you. They're, you're, you're full of, there are literally, uh, I believe, most of the cells, uh, oh, I can't remember the exact metric, um, but uh, by some measures, you are there are more bug cells in you than human cells um, because of the number of bacteria and other protozoa and other you know little creepy crawlies mm-hmm. that are living in your guts and and other parts of you. Wow. How very uh, Nightmare Before Christmas of us. Exactly. You are going to make an argument in, in my house. I can see it coming over the uh, the purebred dog thing. Oh, yeah. My wife has already told me what kind of <laughs> this mixed with this we're going to get. Oh, my gosh. And I'm kind of like just not really into purebreds. Uh, yeah. You know, on in a general sense. Yeah. I was, re- I, was I, I come from mutt people. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I'm just a, a mutt sort of person. Yeah, purebreds are a total fiction. Yeah, uh, it's 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 funny, and we all there's some things that you talk about on the show that you go, oh wow, that's like say the lobster thing. Most people would honestly say I did not know that. All right, how could yeah. I have seen that coming? The pure breed thing. I don't know if you want to, uh, you know, uh, say what the the basic deal is. We all know they're not real. Well, no, I think a lot of people emotionally think they are real, yeah. and and it's a deep, it's deeply embedded in the way we talk about dogs, right? Mm-hmm. That people say. If they see a dog that is a mutt, right? I, I, uh, 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 our, our last dog, um, was a beautiful mutt, um, gorgeous dog. People would say, "What breed is she?" We would say, "She's not a breed. She is a, she is a purebred mutt, right? Okay. She, she is a, she. There, there is no breed in her. We literally, my girlfriend briefly thought, oh, let's see what she has sent away from those D- DNA tests. They said she was two percent chow chow and ninety percent other." Right. And, or sorry, 98 percent other. Yeah. And let me tell you, there's no chow chow in this dog. This dog, there's no Chinese, you know, descent from this dog. Um, this dog is like if you let dogs fuck in the woods for 100 years, you would mm-hmm. end up with this dog. We went to As in- they would prefer to do. Yeah. We went to India where they have straight up street dogs. Right. Which is that's what dogs originally were. They're like pigeons. You know, they're like hanging around eating trash, you know. Um, and all the dogs looked like her. Right. They were all her size, different coloration, different, you know kinds of fur density but you know same size mid-sized dog you know short but not long snout so this dog is a mutt 
People would come up and say, oh, what breed is she? We'd say she's not a breed. They'd say, okay, well, I think there's probably a little beagle in there, right? Um, that People just believe that every dog is a combination of different pure breeds as though they're species, you know? Right. Um, as though it's like, uh, you know, you breed a horse and a donkey and you get a mule, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is not how dogs work. Um, dogs are, uh, uh, you know, most pure breeds uh, were invented in the last hundred years. Um, and all they are is they're a definitional document that some kennel club somewhere invented for what their breed is called. Um, and they got the broader kennel club to agree to it. Um, and that's it. That's all a breed is, right? Um, and uh, those breeds are uh, change over time. Uh, like the, the if you look at the English bulldog 120 years ago, it looks completely different from what an English bulldog looks like today. They don't match, mm-hmm. right? And also... Those populations, since they're limited populations of dogs, the dogs are progressively getting less healthy. Uh, they, you know, that that is the the English bulldog hasn't gotten better. Let me tell you, it's gotten worse. No, right? and I think most people with eyeballs can tell that. Yeah, uh, a- absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, there certainly were before the rise of hobbyist dog breeding as this sort of pseudoscientific, you know, competition endeavor. Uh, which, by the way, was was associated with the rise of the eugenics movement as well. It was it was basically a fad in late nineteenth century England to breed things and create breeds. Right? They did it to pigeons. They did it to cats. They did it to plants. They did it to dogs. Right? Before that, there were certainly varieties of dogs. You know, there were folk breeds. There were uh, you know uh, uh, you know dogs that were you know living in in Asia looked different from dogs that were living in Ireland. You know, etc. And uh, that's fine. But, you know, there was this proliferation of breeds, of pure breeding. The idea of a, quote, pure breed uh, started then. Um, and it's a it's a fiction. It doesn't correspond to anything in nature. It's something that humans created, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's hurting dogs. So when someone says, hey, this is a purebred dog, that doesn't mean it's an original type of dog that's pure and every other dog is a mutt. It means this dog is from a weird self-selected sample that some, that some group of human freaks yeah. decided to segment off from the rest of the dog population and only let breed with each other. And that's what this is. So this dog isn't purebred. It's inbred. It's radically inbred. Yeah. Right. And so some people say, okay, what if you have two dogs that are purebred with each other? You know, like a mix. What if, what if I get a puggle, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I would say that, okay, that puggle will hopefully be less inbred than a the pug and the poodle would be. But I do feel bad for the poor pug and poodle mother that are uh, mother and father that are living in some horrible backyard pen being forced to fuck every five minutes to create these custom puggles, right? Yeah. Much better just to forget about dog breeds entirely mm-hmm. and just look for – just go to the kennel and – you know, find the dog that most appeals to you. There, is, there are differences between dogs. Just use your eyes and ears, you know, and spend some time with the dog and find one that is the right size, that is going to, uh, that has a temperament that you enjoy, right? Um, yeah, that let's needs, let dogs that marry needs a home. For, let's let dogs marry for love. Absolutely. Let dogs marry for <laughs> love, please. Uh, we have about three minutes left and I have Great. one, maybe two big questions Happy that to answer I, them. I want to ask you. So uh, I know I answer in full paragraphs. This happens in every interview where I'll, where I'll be asked one question, I'll go off for 20 minutes, so I apologize for that. No, not at all. I, I enjoy complete thoughts. Um, that's <laughs> kind of what we try to do. It's kind of my right. thing. So uh, I'm not totally excited about where we seem to be headed as a society for reasons that don't really need to be uh, explained. I mean, who could be? Um, in your opinion, 
can America as a society do things that are counterintuitive? I found myself thinking about that over and over watching the collection of your show that's on Netflix. I'll give you an example. You can make the argument, and it's probably a valid argument, that, uh, as you say on your show, monetizing the demand for trophy hunting can save endangered species. Mm-hmm. That's right. Can you can America as a body politic, when, when you know that there are going to be rabble-rousing politicians who are arguing against you, Get get on board with the idea. If we let people kill one white rhino, it could save the white rhinos. But that guy is going to be an asshole. It's going to drag the carcass back to America and put pictures on Facebook. Yeah. Can we do it? Uh, well, first of all, I, I want to say it's not up to us to decide whether or not to do that to the white rhino because the white rhino lives in other countries, mm-hmm. right? And so it's up to those countries. And, sure. And, but the, it's, it's a general concept. Yes. Uh, and, and I don't want to say, by the way, I just want to make clear anytime anyone brings this topic up that um, that is not for that to work. It needs to be really carefully managed by the country in question. Mm -hmm. And some countries do it well and some don't. So it's not a thing I blanket uh, advocate for. But there are countries that that have trophy hunting as part of their wildlife management um, in a way that help helps protect that species. Um, uh, So using that as an example, though, can we do counterintuitive policies like those? Um, you know, it really requires everybody to get on board. It requires people to become educated on the issue, mm-hmm. to um, understand uh, what uh, is at stake, uh, and to, you know, get behind it, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you see that to varying degrees, right? Uh, you know, I remember uh, a really good example of this not happening was when, like, Mike Bloomberg tried to, uh, in New York, re- restrict the soda sizes of cups. Yes. Right? And he tried to really use, guys, this is psychology. He gave a press conference where he was like, there's psychological research out there that if the container is bigger, you drink more. And we're not saying you can't buy two sodas, but we're just saying if the cups are smaller, that's a great way to drink less. And it matches what the advice you give people when they're trying to, you know, eat better. Hey, get a smaller plate, right? Don't don't get so big a cup, you know? Mm-hmm. And hey, what if we did this for, what a great change this would be for all of us. And people didn't understand it and he got raked over the coals and yes. that policy failed, right? Mm. But there are cases where people demand this kind of action. I'm listening to a book about uh, the New Deal right now uh, on audiobook, uh, and it's a good way to get through 900 pages of history is on audiobook, I find. Um, And, you know, around when Social Security was uh, created, um, kind of a counterintuitive idea, especially contrary to the sort of American, uh, you know, ideal of, you know, individual yada yada. We hate communists. And no government yada yada, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time, ideas about, hey, old people are dying in the streets. Uh, it was during the Depression, right? Um, and the idea of, uh, there's uh, uh, the general idea of let's uh, pay a little bit uh, and then distribute a little bit uh, as a way to increase everyone's overall, you know, uh, well-being was becoming very popular. And they, the reason Social Security was actually passed was because it was the least radical plan that was out there because there was a groundswell of support for plans like these, right? Um, and so, you know, you can feel that sort of uh, you know, occasionally these ideas can catch on um, and uh, become well known. You know, uh, another example: universal basic income as an idea is one. I, I actually have not 
delved into the studies behind that myself, but that's an idea where, hey, if everyone got $1,000 a, a month or a week or whatever, um, you know, that would be a way to, uh, you know, reduce poverty and create more economic opportunities in a way that everyone can get behind. And that's an idea that when people hear about it, you know, the argument is made convincingly and they get behind it. And, you know, maybe we'll see that same kind of groundswell, right? So, it's not impossible. You just need to win people over. If you try to do it like Mike Bloomberg and you don't convince everybody of it, it might yeah. not work, right? But if you can spread the idea, it, it can get there. And that's what our show is, is trying to do. You're doing God's work, Adam. Thank you. The uh, Mind Parasites live tour dates can be found at adamconover.net, and everybody can watch Adam Ruins Everything on Netflix and on True TV. New episodes coming this summer. You're at Adam Conover. AdamConover.net, that's me.